You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 33, Speaking Swahili, Kikuyu, and Shang. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. In this episode, we're talking with Warimu, creator of Walimu Warimu, about Swahili, Kukuyu, and Shang. Friends, I loved having this conversation. And in fact, we talked for over two hours and I still didn't get to talk about all the things that were looming in my mind. But more on that later. Wairimu tells us about growing up and being encouraged by teachers to speak English in school instead of her native Kikuyu. We talk about her journey to learning Swahili from the time spent both in and away from Nairobi, and we even get into the origins of the Swahili language through the island of Zanzibar and the spread of the language through East African nations. Other topics include coastal Swahili versus Nairobi Swahili, a reading in Kikuyu, and the one big misconception that some people have about the Swahili language. And because you're all longtime listeners, you know that I usually like to step in the shoes of a first-time learner to practice some phrases that I'm unfamiliar with. This time, my attempt does not disappoint, although it might disappoint some native Swahili speakers, but we practice it slowly enough for you all to follow along. Now, as I said, this conversation was originally over two hours and I didn't have a chance to include everything we discussed. So if you head over to my blog at speakingtonguespodcast.com, you will find Wairimu's answers to a few questions we missed in the recording of this episode. And as always, if you're listening with Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to hit subscribe and to rate and review the episode so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. Okay. Let's chat. I'm here with Wairimu. Did I get that right? Yes. Yes, okay. you did. <laughs> Wairimu. And we're here. I'm so excited to talk to you um, about your language because this is the first time I'm talking about this language on the show. And I want you to tell everybody um, what it is, even though it'll be in the title, but whatever. <laughs> I want you to tell everybody what <laughs> What is your first language and which languages have you learned to speak? My first language, as in the language I have, I feel like I have a level of mastery over, I'd say, is English. Um, but in terms of the first language or languages that I was first exposed to in the beginning of my life, it would be English and Kikuyu, which is my ethnic language. But I don't speak Kikuyu. I can mostly just hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I speak Kiswahili and I know like a dabble of French. Which languages did you hear uh, spoken in your home growing up? So that was Kikuyu. Mm -hmm. Um, But as we started going through school, it was phased out a lot more um, just because, you know, our parents wanted to avoid us being discriminated against in school for speaking another language. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because like in the U.S., there has been this English-only movement that, you know, we've had historically, um, as America was, you know, creating itself and, you know, conquering and um, through the world wars, et cetera, et cetera, and that 
you know, carries over into education policy and pedagogy. So um, usually you would find teachers, um, particularly in public schools, um, that would discourage parents from speaking um, their mother tongue within the home so that mm-hmm. children can learn English faster. Right. So that was phased out. So I could hear it because, you know, my parents and their friends and family would always speak Kikuyu. Mm-hmm. So I was able to pick it up. Um, but I just, I, I don't have the tongue. I, I'm not able to really speak Kikuyu, unfortunately. Right. But that's on my list to like definitely get through. When that was happening, I guess when your parents did phase out speaking Kikuyu to you and your siblings, um, were you aware of it at the time? Were you aware that this is what your educators were expecting of you and of your parents? Or was it something that you were able to reflect on later? A little bit of both, but when I was young, it wasn't necessarily from the educators, but rather from my parents and their friends. I see. So, um, you know, I remember my dad speaking to me in Kikuyu um, and being comfortable with it. And then, you know, that not happening anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was told that, you know, you're going to school. So, you know, like we need to switch uh, to English and that be consistent. Um, and I did watch, especially my dad, struggle with it because we'd go through long periods of not of me not being addressed in Kikuyu and then like he'll say something random, um, like ask me to do something. And I would be like, wait, what? What's that? And he's like, you know this, because we, 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 we've talked about this before, but because we, I, I went through such a long period not speaking it or not hearing it, mm-hmm. you know, I would just lose it. Right. Um, and so I, I would see, like, in his face, like, you know, he's getting frustrated, but he also knows, you know, that's a decision that he made with my mom. Um, so there was that. Uh, but also my parents' friend had a daughter who um, was in preschool. She spoke a bit of Kikuyu and then the teacher started to talk to the parents about her being, um, her to get English language learning instead. So she would have to switch schools, um, take different classes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that pretty much raised the flags for my parents and their friends and family. to not speak Kikuyu to their children so that that, that doesn't happen to, mm-hmm. to us as well. I, I never know what to think about that. I just think it's like, it's so unfair. It, it's kind of like, it, it makes sense. But at the same time, I think it's so unfair to like force people, especially young kids who they're in that mind of they're able to learn a language so much more with so much more flexibility and mm-hmm. it, there's this like shaming in a way um, of families and of young children for speaking their heritage language, their native, you know, their native tongue in, you know, in, in front of, you know, non-speakers. It's, it's like, I never know what to think. Yeah. So when I was in college I I was studying the sociology of education and so I was able to reflect on all of this and um you know being having gone through public schooling and learned it you know you'll find that somehow being an English language learner 
become synonymous with being intellectually deficient, mm. which, you know, is propaganda really because, you know, numerous studies have proven time and time again that bilingual and multilingual brains are actually much healthier brains overall, mm. right? right? Um, so it's really doing a disservice to, you know, the, the learning of, of children, of students to, you know, to now have this um, subtractive bilingualism pedagogy where you have to, ch- where it has to be either or language instead of both and, mm-hmm. right? I remember we did a class, um, we were holding a literacy program um, and we would translate poems from different languages to English, but the, the students that we were working with were at various um, levels of fluency um, in English. So we had students who their first language was English, some were English language learners, some um, were bilingual, so they knew Spanish. Um, for some people, they knew some Spanish, um, but English was their first language. A lot of the English language learners were Spanish speaking. And um, I remember when we would have, you know, when we're working with these poems, a lot of times the English language learners wouldn't be as engaged, which I think, you know, was understandable because there was a language barrier there, right. um, especially when we were, you know, doing more so higher level tasks like, you know, analyzing the poem and justifying um, decisions on how they translated the poem, um, they would be more engaged with, you know, when it comes to reading the poem. Um, But once we were translating a Spanish poem and the English language learners who were speaking Spanish, they were completely different students, like Hmm. all together. Like they were like, you know, raising their hand. They want to be the first ones to read the poem you know, and they're just, just so engaged. And the way we had the poem, so we have the original poem in a foreign language, um, or quote unquote, foreign language to who. Mm-hmm. And then we would have a word bank um, for each word and then um, a word bank of translations. So, you know, each student will have various um, versions of the same poem, depending on their word choices. Um, and what we found, because you know, when we read the poem as a group and then we break into small groups and have discussions about the poem and English language learners were now on the same um, platform as students who, whose first language was English, but they had some familiarity with Spanish. Mm-hmm. So now they can talk about, um, they're pretty much exchanging languages when mm-hmm. they were having those conversations. So Spanish speakers are able to ask questions about um, the different synonyms, the different words in English, and the English, the students whose first language was English are able to um, use the Spanish speakers as a resource in the Spanish language. Um, And obviously all the Spanish speakers are coming from different countries as well, so now there's a conversation about dialect. You know, we say this, you guys say that, what's that about? Right. And so now this is allowing um, both students to be or both groups of students rather to deepen their understanding of both languages. Right. And that's a very rich dialogue to have and for them to be able to socialize, because, you know, when you're learning a language, you know, it, you can only learn so much when you're just, you know, learning by the textbook. 
-hmm. you know, it really helps being able to build relationships with people and to have conversations, um, just to be immersed in, in the language, right? Um, but what you find in public schools, because English language learners are separated from English native speakers, that immersion is not able to happen, right? And politically, you know, how when America, like, just through the different wars would instill just, you know, the English-only movement, um, it now creates a stigma for speaking another language that is really unnecessary, Mm-hmm. Right. And so that translates now into how students are able to socialize. So now we're seeing groups of people socialize that weren't before. So, yeah, I, I do think it's 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 quite a disservice to the learning of students to mm-hmm. to to do that. Thinking about that, I guess I want to ask you, um, having that awareness and, you know, if you had any awareness of it at the time, what was your experience like learning? quote, foreign uh, or learning other languages when you were in school? Okay, well, <laughs> the first time I learned a different language in school was in, um, in Kenya, we say standard two instead of like grade two. Mm-hmm. And I just moved um, from the States. And, you know, as I said, I was only familiar with English and Kikuyu. So class starts and the teacher is writing (laughs) like a different language apparently it's the date and a word and she's pretty much speaking Kiswahili but I I had I had no idea that that language even existed Mm -hmm. um and so my dad picked me up from school he asked like how was your first day of school I was like dad the teacher spoke another language for a class Mm -hmm. um but I was six years old and so you know, I feel like I just kind of got thrown into the language, not just at school, but also outside of school, because my dad spoke Kiswahili, so he could teach me after mm. school. Um, and then the seven o'clock p.m. news in Kenya was in Kiswahili, so my dad was intentional about, you know, making sure we were listening to the seven o'clock news in Kiswahili. Mm-hmm. So literally, like, within no time, I just, you know, I was able to talk in Kiswahili. Right. So that was easy. Um, and then <laughs> <laughs> that was fine. I think it was more so like my, my, my challenges with Kiswari then just became like, you know, um, getting the noun classes right and the grammar and all that kind of stuff. But I was able to speak. Um, and then I moved to an Indian school that had the IGCSE curriculum which stands for the international general certificate of secondary education so it's an internationally recognized exam um develops at the university of cambridge and at that school the class the, the language classes were english as the official language um Kiswahili as a national language and french as the foreign language mm. and they started all those three in year three and i had no french experience so i was starting french four <laughs> <laughs> again in a class not knowing what's going on um so being thrown into that but my mom got me this collection of learn french cds so i'd listen to that and i learned quite a bit um i think just by virtue of i I guess just being thrown (laughs) into the depths of a language um and then learning the basics on the side i think i was able to kind of 
I don't, I don't think I really caught up all the way, but I definitely learned a lot more in this three years there than once I moved uh, back to the States in ninth grade, I took French one in ninth grade. So now I was going back mm. and, and I did French one up to French four. And I don't think I learned anything um, at that point. And then for Swahili at the Indian school, um, I did have a year of Swahili in year six, but I also did not learn anything. So in the case for Swahili at the Indian school, the hierarchy of languages was pretty clear. So I never saw Swahili textbooks. Hmm. The teachers would have, you know, these printed um, workbooks. I don't know if they developed it themselves or something else, but the Swahili seemed very watered down and it seems like it was Swahili being taught to people, to, to foreigners, people who didn't know Swahili, but in the Kenyan school, Swahili was being taught like you knew Swahili, like you were a native Swahili speaker. Yeah. But, you know, but for French, we had textbooks being imported from Europe. So mm-hmm. I didn't understand why there was that difference, you mm-hmm. know, because we obviously, like within the country, within the region, there are, you know, great quality Swahili textbooks, but for whatever reason, there just weren't being, um, invested in in the same way that French was in that school right um and then coming to the states taking French um I guess well IGCSE is just it's a lot it's a much more rigorous curriculum um so it wasn't exam based um there's just like a lot of content a lot that's just kind of demanded of you at a just at a brain power level that I think just wasn't demanded of me um, in school in the States. And yeah, like, you know, we had like some exams and quizzes and whatnot in French, mm-hmm. but um, this is now in America, but I do remember at one point, um, okay, no one's really gonna be able to trace this back, hopefully not, but <laughs> I had a teacher that would literally mouth the answers <laughs> to a citywide um, assessment exam for French. Oh, no. So, yeah, so I, I, I didn't really have to learn a lot in French, you know? <laughs> and this is here in the States? Yeah, yeah, this is in high school. Wow. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm. It's really lost on me. Like, what, like, what did I actually do in French? I think I had like some homework, pro, like questions to do here and there, but nothing that demanded a lot of me for mm-hmm. me to really learn. So I think the the periods that I've had great um, learning language learning acquisition was more so when I was just thrown into a language and then I was kind of learning the basics on the side. Where was the Indian school? In Nairobi. Okay. So I went to two schools in Nairobi. One was Kenyan. The other one was Indian with like an international curriculum. Gotcha. So, you know, my Kenyan friends would actually, like, they're the ones who had been at that school since they were young and they, you know, would seem to be refreshed to hear you know someone speaking Kiswahili and they'll be like yeah like like keep talking to me in Kiswahili like don't don't let anyone discourage you 
Um, but I, I, I would get quite a bit of pushback for speaking Swahili. Um, you know, in Kenya, we have a, you know, a significant Indian population that came um, primarily from um, during the time of colonization when the British Empire was controlling both East Africa and India um, to build the, there was an East African railway project that Britain wanted to build. So they brought in um, Indians as intentioned um, workers to work on railway. And a number of them stayed after that. So we, we do have a significant Indian population, but during colonization, there was a hierarchy racially where, you know, Brit, Brit, British people would be first class citizens, Indians, Asians would be second class citizens, and Kenyans, Africans would be third class citizens. And, you know, that, I mean, I don't want to make generalizations, but, you know, I guess the Kenyan or the Black Kenyan and Indian populations within Kenya have some tensions um, mm, okay. in regards to how they relate to one another. Okay. So I want to talk about Kiswahili. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what it was like, I guess. Uh, tell me what it was like language-wise moving from the U.S. to Kenya and back to the U.S. and how you were able to retain your speaking, uh, how you were able to retain your ability to speak uh, Kiswahili and if it improved or suffered at all. So when I initially moved to Kenya uh, when I was six, as I mentioned, I was pretty much a sponge. So it was a very smooth process Um, and then moved back and then but I was starting to actually lose Swahili when I was at the Indian school. Mm. So I would notice that um, a lot of my family, when I'd see them after being at the Indian school, they're like, why do you speak like an Indian? Like, can you still speak Swahili? Um, and mm. I didn't really realize, I was like, what, like, what do you mean? And I guess sometimes you're not really cognizant of those changes. It really takes, you know, your family or, you know, people from the outside to tell you. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time my dad, um, we were just like all hanging out at the family and he said, um, there was like a Shang word called most, that's most, most, which is, um, it means like going slowly, but it's a very popular word. Like there's a, there's a hit song called that. Like it's a, it's a, it's like, you know what it means. We know what it means. And he said like, you know, I will give, um, like this pocket change or whatever to whoever can tell me what it means in English which is literally like a test, right? And I remember all of us were like, huh, huh. Like we were really, mm. like we, we really took a minute and we were really struggling with, wait, what, what, does that, what does that mean again? Even though like during our early years in Kenya, like that was a song that we listened to. Mm-hmm. So my language, my, my Kiswahili uh, language was kind of, deteriorating as I kind of got in the Indian school and then I moved and I barely spoke Kiswahili and then for my quote-unquote study abroad experience (laughs) (laughs) I went back to Kenya and I was there for six months okay and I realized that you know I could be in a situation and I, I want to say something 
or I hear something and I, I know it's familiar. I know what it is, but it was just be, it would be so just so far back in my mind. I just cannot pull it out to, to be able to verbalize what it is I want to say or to get the meaning that I need to get it. It would just be just too, like just too deep in my mind for me to to be able to retrieve it. Um, and so that's when I realized, no, I actually need to retain this. Fortunately, through the study abroad program, um, I was getting one-on-one Swahili instruction okay. since I was the only I was the only one um, in my cohort that knew Kiswahili. So mm-hmm. I had to have my own teacher. So it was great, you know, like yeah. it would, our classes was literally us just having conversations they would ask me open-ended conversations and I would have to you know go in depth answering their question they would ask follow-up questions um I had to write like two essays um so I was able to make pretty good progress with my Kiswahili so when I came back I thought there's no way I I can lose this there's this this no way that um because I knew that I wouldn't be able to go back to Kenya for such a length of time again, because I was there for like six months. Yeah. So now it would be, you know, just like a very quick trip for like, you know, maybe two-ish weeks for vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, you know, I actually need to preserve this, which is why I started, you know, an Instagram page where I solely focus on Swahili because, you know, I do know people that speak Swahili, um, but because a lot of us are more comfortable with English, mm-hmm. it's like we can say, okay, we're only going to speak in, in Kiswahili. And then we start and then we find ourselves speaking in English because that's just what we're used to. Right, right. So I figured um, that's probably not the most effective way <laughs> to maintain Kiswahili. So I have that Instagram page. Um, and then obviously just like, um, listening and just being on, um, on top of like Kenyan media and Kenyan music and culture and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just trying to show my brain that it's, it's still relevant. It's still right. a relevant language. Yeah. Um, so it shouldn't be too tucked away. <laughs> so that's what I've been trying to do with my brain to kind of keep it. And I, I think it's pretty good. Um, not perfect, but I think I'm definitely able now um, like to converse with friends at a level that I wasn't able to prior to going to Kenya. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've, it's been good being able to maintain it. I think that's really important, um, the maintenance part, especially when, mm-hmm. you're, when you're outside of, of the country and, and, you know, you have to live your life and you have to do the best that you can, but it seems like you are, seems like you're doing it. And you taught me my first Kiswahili word, which we'll get to later, but yes. <laughs> I want to ask you, I want to ask you though, when do we say Kiswahili and when do we say Swahili? Oh, um, it's pretty much like the difference between Spanish and Espanol. So Spanish is English for Spanish and then Espanol is Spanish for Spanish, right? Oh. Did I say that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Espanol yeah, yeah. being Spanish for Spanish. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So Swahili, Swahili is English for Kiswahili. Kiswahili okay. is the 
Kiswahili way of saying Swahili. So if I was in Nairobi, I would be more likely to say Kiswahili. Yes. Okay. One thing that I I learned as I was doing a little research for this episode, mm-hmm. um, I read that Swahili is a mix of local Bantu languages and Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So this is what I find I found really interesting when I was uh, doing some research is that Swahili is so widely spoken in Kenya and Tanzania and that region of Africa. And Mm -hmm. Arabic is so widely spoken in Northern Africa and Northeastern and the Gulf and et cetera. And Arabic varies so much and Bantu languages have similarities, but also differences. And I guess if you know, maybe you don't have an answer to this, but um, from country to country and maybe even from region to region within Kenya, and surrounding countries, do you notice differences in spoken Swahili? Um, mm-hmm. Okay, like are they like accents or they dialects or how do you notice those um, differences and similarities? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Okay, so we have um, so there's a saying that Swahili Swahili was born in Zanzibar. It grew up in Tanzania. It died in Kenya. Stop it. It was buried in Uganda. Oh, and its ghost is fleeing in the Congo. Huh. Right? So Swahili, there's there's Swahili the language and there's the Swahili people. Mm -hmm. So the the Swahili people are more so on the coasts, the east, the East African coast by the Indian Ocean. Right. And the Arabs came through the Indian Ocean to trade um, and whatnot. So that's how, you know, they say it started in Zanzibar, Zanzibar being an island. A mm-hmm. lot, a lot of, um, there's a lot of traffic, a lot of international traffic in Zanzibar. So people say it was born there. Mm-hmm. It grew up in Tanzania. Tanzania is known, like, they're known for speaking really like like really good Swahili. Like uh, it's called Kiswahili Sanifu. Like the oh. proper, proper, like they, they just speak Swahili. Okay. And of course they have their slang, mm-hmm. but even the way they they speak Swahili is melodic in the sense that, you know, um, there's a saying that good Swahili is not spoken, it's saying. Because the whole language, how you enunciate everything, it comes down to syllables. The first thing you learn in Swahili is how to enunciate syllables. So, you know, even if you have like these complex, you know, conjugation um, and you have like a really long word, you'll never fumble over how to pronounce a word. You just enunciate each syllable as you go, which allows you to have a particular melody to it, right? Right. So the Tanzanians are known for speaking very, you know, a very nice, melodic, sweet <laughs> Swahili, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you have like a female voice. And then in Kenya, having been colonized by the British, we now balance English and Kiswahili, right? Um, so a bit of a, another thing about Tanzanians is they have a very strong like national 
culture. Um, so their ethnic groups, I guess, would take more of a secondary, it's more of like a secondary identity. So mm-hmm. like everyone is speaking Swahili for the most part. In Kenya, Swahili, and just the essence of Swahili, the, it, it was meant to be, it's a lingua franca language it's to be spoken um, between people who don't share the same uh linguistic background so people mm-hmm. of different ethnic groups are able to you know come together with Kiswahili and conduct business etc cetera, etc cetera. I see yeah so but our official language in Kenya is English that is the language of instruction in schools that's the official language of the government if you're in like a white collar space you'll you'll probably be English will probably be the dominant language Mm-hmm. Um, and then Kiswahili is our national language, so you can see that more so, um, you know, whether it's like in the blue collar space, if you're at a market, et cetera, et cetera. So people mix English and Swahili because, you know, especially because we're learning it all throughout school, everyone is pretty, you know, well versed in both. So there's a mix of that, but we also have Sheng, which is uh, based in Nairobi. Okay. So it's like a Nairobian urban youth language that's becoming, um, and has been for a while, becoming more popular and becoming more mainstream. So Shang, it has a Swahili based, so it sounds like Swahili, but it, it's, it's really a cat language, a cant language, and it borrows from a whole bunch of other languages. So Swahili, English, local languages, um, foreign languages. Like I remember one time there was like a spinoff of good morning in German, you know, mm. it's, it's a, it's a language that um, like can't languages are languages that um, are, are coded languages. You don't want other people to know them. Yeah. And so yeah. it's to know what you're saying. So it's constantly evolving. So um, what you find is you have the term for, let's say chair today. But then in two months, that changes. And it can also be area specific as well. Huh. And yeah, and some words, you know, are just, be, are just um, within the urban youth. And sometimes some words get picked up in the mainstream. So there's a mixing of that. There's a mixing of English, Swahili, and Sheng. So you can so speak, cool. right, you can speak Swahili, but not understand Sheng. So there's like a radio station now that, you know, their primary language is Sheng. You can speak Swahili and not understand what they're saying. So, you know, sometimes I guess you can like pick up on meanings based on context and stuff like that. But as it continues to evolve, it kind of seems like that's its own. It's going to be on its own lane. Yeah. (laughs) So how there's a. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like where could we hear Shang? Like if cuz like I I've heard of it, but I've never heard it. Um Yeah, I guess you'd mostly hear it um so I know there's like a local radio station in Kenya and then um in pop culture, but usually Shang is being mixed around. Like if you were to listen to um let's say a song, like a rap song, there could be some Shang in there, but there could also be Swahili there as well. Um, and English as well. I think those like Shang only resources on the internet, um, 
I don't see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also part of the, um, I don't know if I want to say it's part of the point with Sheng because there is a whole radio station, but <laughs> in its essence, it is a can't language. I think it's, it's relatively new for us to see Sheng evolve to, to, to that level. Right. You know, I think it's, it's still coming up the ranks and reaching other heights, like having a radio station um, and just it to be recognized as an actual language to be in newspapers and stuff like that. So we're, we're not, I'm at, well, me personally, I'm not there yet in terms <laughs> of being like, okay, these are the, like, this is where you can find Chang. How do people feel about it? Because, you know, with a lot of languages that are uh, languages or slangs or however you call them that are um, utilized by the youth, uh, you know, people usually have adverse reactions in the in the mm-hmm. beginning. And I wonder, like, how do people? I I want to say, like, you know, the get off my lawn elders. <laughs> <laughs> like, how how do I guess Kenyan? parents or or elders or like what do do you know like what do people think about it how what's the reaction like um there is definitely like a resistance um it's controversial because you'll find that um especially with uh inner city youth their first language would be shang instead (sighs) of either um english or that that's now happening really Um, yeah. So, you know, I've definitely heard in the news, like, you know, that pushback politicians criticizing Shang and that, you know, we need to abolish the language and, you know, mm. um, minimize it and not recognize it as much because it, it can be confusing, mm-hmm. um, which um, I guess I get both sides. It, it is true. It can be confusing because I remember definitely being in class, taking an examination and I didn't know what something was in Swahili, but I knew it in Shang. And I was like, well, mm. <laughs> maybe I'll do some swapping out here. Like it's a brilliant, like Shang, Shang is a brilliant language, you know, um, to be able to speak it, um, to be able to keep, keep up with it. I, I, there's a lot of brilliance in it that I don't think um, is recognized as much, but there are people who recognize that that's the way to, you know, reach youth as well. Mm. So I've definitely seen um, like advertisements um, or campaigns or a campaign poster and they'll have Shang in there. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess in the corporate space, they know that if you want to target a particular demographic, then that's the route you would go. Right. Um, but, you know, I guess politically and in terms of education, education policy, it is pretty contested you know, I've heard about it, but I don't, I guess I didn't know how, like what the depths of it were. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to research and I wanted to learn more and find out all this stuff. But then I also wanted to ask you like on a personal level, because I didn't want to make assumptions about what it was Mm -hmm. um, and what it, I guess the role that it played in society um, in Nairobi, um, in Kenya. So um I would have never guessed like half of the things that you told me that, you know, for some people it's becoming like a first language. Um, mm-hmm. That's just like, I, I got to dive deeper into this now. <laughs> I want to know so much more. 
on the coast of Nairobi, it's they have it's different. Mm. Um, so it's dialect. So they speak a lot more Swahili, um, and sometimes there are differences in terminologies. So in Nairobi, if I wanted to say rice, I would say chele. But if you're on the coast, they'll probably say wali. So I pulled up a map at some mm-hmm. point when you were talking because I know exactly where Kenya is, right? But mm-hmm. I didn't want to make assumptions and I wanted to just have the map in front of me. So I guess in a city like Mombasa mm-hmm. and Nairobi, the, the Swahili, the dialects would be different between those two big cities? Right. Okay. So for the most part, yes, we'll understand each other. There'll just be those like little differences here and there in terms of words, like I mentioned with the Chile versus Wali. Um, and then the way we speak Swahili is different. So Nairobi Swahili is, is you know, mixed up with like a lot of times with the English, with the Shang. Um, and then on the coast, because now the, the coast area, you have Swahili people. It's not exclusive to Swahili people, but they're there. Um, and so it's, it's more Swahili. It, the Swahili culture is more so on the coast. So the way they speak Swahili is, um, is a lot more of that Swahili Sanifu. Not exactly Swahili Sanifu, hmm. but it, it's a lot more proper than the Swahili in Nairobi, relatively I speaking. I see. Mm-hmm. When you go to Uganda, technically on paper, English and Swahili are their um, official languages, but Swahili doesn't really have that reach like it does in Kenya or Tanzania because they have um, other languages like Luganda that is spoken across the country. So Mm -hmm. usually when people are speaking Swahili in Uganda, it's more so whether it's like a Ugandan who elected to learn Swahili. Um, I hear it's more popular with the military people. They are, are... much better versed in Swahili. Um, in Congo, I hear there's a Swahili-speaking population there. Um, from my personal experience with Congolese, a lot of times that Swahili is mixed up with French, mm. the DRC being a Francophone country. Right. Rwanda and Burundi, they're two really small countries, um, but before colonization, Rwanda, Burundi, and parts of um, the Congo that borders them used to be the Rwandan kingdom. So Burundi speaks Kirundi and Rwanda speaks Kinyarwanda. Um, but those languages, they can kind of understand one another. Mm-hmm. So Swahili doesn't work in the same way. But you'll have people, you know, based on their migration history say for example would speak Swahili right um and I remember one time I was in Rwanda and I'll try to like connect with someone and you know try to figure out (laughs) which language should we speak because they used to be a francophone country now apparently they switched their official language to English but then people are speaking Rwanda because that's their national language um and then when it comes to Swahili the question would be Swahili of where? So are you speaking Swahili from Congo? Are you speaking Swahili of Tanzania? Are you speaking Swahili of Kenya? Where, where is your Swahili coming from is what I would get. 
Um, but it's also class. Like I had a friend who um, said that, you know, growing up, she was told not to speak Swahili because that's a, a language that more working class people would speak. Hmm. Um, it's not as classed in different countries. So Swahili just, it has its own dynamic in different <laughs> countries. Yeah. Um, and it's also spoken like Southeastern Africa, like, you know, Northern Mozambique, the Comoros, I think parts of Malawi, Southern Somalia. Um, but I'm not too well versed in terms of what that looks like specifically in those, in those spaces. I have to tell you, this trip that we just went on, this geographical trip that you just took me through, speaking Swahili, <laughs> I cannot wait to go. Like, I, I want to go. Yes. So badly. Yes. yes. And, like, I'm your student right now because I'm really just uh, <laughs> learning, learning so much um, for the first time. And I'm, I'm like... I'm so happy. <laughs> How do you notice Kenyans relating with Swahili? And now that I know it's not, you know, like English is more of the, English is the official language? Is it the mm -hmm. only? Okay, so English is the official language. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you notice Kenyans relating with uh, Swahili? And I guess by that, I mean, what context and what areas of life are people using or choosing to use Swahili or choose or use their ethnic languages over English? As a national language, Swahili is the language that you would use to relate with someone when you're trying to, you know, reach to, um, like in Kenya we would say, like the common wananchi, which is like, you know, your common, ordinary, everyday citizen, right? Mm -hmm. Like your, your common person, um, and you want you want to relate to one another. So it could be, you know, for me, let's say I'm at a marketplace and I want to get some beautiful Maasai jewelry and I'll probably use Swahili in that moment so I can negotiate um, a fair price for myself and for, for both of us, right? Mm -hmm. um, it could be, um, so that's like more of like on an everyday level. Um, and then it could, be like if it's on the media you know the 7 p.m news is like um it's in swahili because i guess that's when a lot a lot of people would be watching tv mm -hmm. like you're having dinner or whatnot the nine o'clock p.m news would be um in english and sometimes even politicians when do they decide to use what language it depends on what they're doing so if you have um uh, a politician or someone who who's having a very official press briefing that would be in English um, but if someone wants to like as I was mentioning before like relate to people mm -hmm. it would be in Kiswahili sometimes when um, politicians are campaigning and they're trying to appeal to a certain demographic they might use Kiswahili, if it's more of a diverse crowd, or they might use the ethnic, their ethnic language um, if, you know, they're on that land. The thing about um, Kenya is uh, during the colonial times, Nairobi was created as the 
colonial administration headquarters, if you will. Outside of that, you, like almost about every piece of land, there's a particular ethnic group that's dominant there. Mm-hmm. So we would say, you know, not it's, it's not the name of the place, but colloquially we could say, oh, that's Kikui land, that's Luo land, that's Kikamba land or Kamba land rather. Um, so once you're out of Nairobi and you're in those places, mm-hmm. um, the ethnic language would be the dominant language. It would be the first language. So that would be first. And then Swahili would come second, and then English third. Okay. Tell me about some unique points of Kikuyu. Um, how, how different is it, I guess, from Swahili? Um, and, or, or how similar? Or what are, what are some like hallmarks of the sounds of Kikuyu? There are some similarities um, by virtue of Kiswahili pulling from Bantu languages. Mm. So if we're looking at, you know, numbers one through 10, it's actually split between um, Bantu languages like Kikuyu and Arabic. So I do see those similarities. It's pretty similar to two other ethnic group languages, which is Embu and Meru. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they get grouped as Gema. So the Kikuyu Embu and Meru association. So usually they're kind of grouped together as like a collective or an association of tribes. I found a Bible because um, the missionaries, of course, were very diligent um, (laughs) (laughs) in making sure that uh, Bibles were accessible in different languages. Um, So maybe I can read like a paragraph and then you can kind of get a sense for how it sounds like. Oh, sure. Okay, so I don't know what book this is, but it's called Kiambiria um, Emwe, which is one. So I think it's first something. Kiambiria ene kiamaudomoze gai neombore iguru nadie ede eo de deare oria yatere na deare na kedo nayo doma Yare egoro rea korea kuriko nake roho wagai arete igururia mai nake gai akidana akioka atere nikoge odere na kegea odere gai akeona ate udere osio waremwega nake akega yukania odore na doma. I know like gai is God. Um, Maudo Mose is like all all things. Uh, Iguru is like above. Um, Edeo, I think it might be something like may it be or may it be that or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but Roho Agai is the heart of God. Hmm. Thank you for for finding something to to read, and I'm sure that people who are familiar with um, with Swahili and listening to it side by side, like they'll know, um, you know how how similar, how different it, it Kikuyu sounds. I want you to tell me about Mualimu <laughs> Hoiriru. 
Mm-hmm. Moim Moimo. Yeah. Uh, tell me how you got started. Uh, well, you told me a little bit about why you started it, but just, mm-hmm. you know, what was it like starting it? Um, what were some of your initial goals and how do you hope to reach people and teach them more about Swahili and Kenyan culture? And one more thing, teach me how to say it right again, because I know I butchered it. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, it's Mwalimu, Mwalimu, um, which means teacher. And then my name is Wajimu. Um, So it, it pretty much was, you know, when I came back from um, my quote unquote study abroad experience in Kenya, and I wanted to make sure that I'm able to uh, maintain um, the growth that I had in Swahili. And so that was, you know, my Swahili only pocket on the internet or in my life that I could reserve for just Swahili. Also, when I would meet other people um, who, like in the diaspora from the, from the region, so that's the African Great Lakes region, you know, usually people would ask, like, oh, like, do you speak Swahili? And, you know, and usually people want to learn Swahili or, you know, want to find someone to speak in Swahili. Um, and so I figured that would be a nice way to, you know, share that with people who have an interest in speaking Swahili, especially while being of the diaspora. Um, you know, just while you scroll on Instagram, you can read this post in Swahili. Yeah. Um, and also, I wanted to see someone that looks like me making the the content that I make in Swahili, mm. right? So, you know, initially, I was trying to, um, I was looking up Swahili language resources, but a lot of times, of course, they're catered to people who um, already are not familiar with the language, which is not where I'm at personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there could be, um, you know, I don't really watch that much TV. Um, so I'm obviously limited in that sense, uh, media wise, but I really just, I think I spend more time really on social media. Yeah. Um, and so I just really wanted to, um, be able to have, um, or to see platforms that have young women that look like me, especially young women who are in the diaspora, um, who, you know, are interested in some of the things that I'm interested in, but can communicate all that in Swahili and not necessarily in just English, right? Um, And so I figured, well, like Toni Morrison says, you know, you, you write the book that you want to read. Right. I figured, well, I guess, I guess I'll just create that platform. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's how Money Morimu came about. I figured I'd just, you know, start and share, you know, like bits of my life or stuff that I'm learning about um, Kenya and whatnot. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it's been nice, the kind of feedback I get. People find it refreshing, regardless of their various levels mm-hmm. um, of Swahili. So some people who are learning Swahili are like, oh, like, it's great. Like, you know, have that as a resource. Um, but also for Kenyans who are familiar um, with Swahili, you know, a, a number of them enjoy just 
having an extra platform where they can um, have see Swahili content from someone that they can relate to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I said, also in Kenya, people are balancing English, um, Swahili, Shang, um, and also depending on where they grew up, their ethnic language as well. Um, so it's nice to kind of add to that rep- rep- repertoire of um, Swahili resources. And I think for me also, while I'm creating content in Swahili, part of what um, I've been wanting to do is find my own voice in Swahili. Mm -hmm. Because in English, you know, I, it's the language I'm most strongest in linguistically, right? Like, I've read a lot, I've listened a lot, I've consumed a lot in English to the point where I feel like I have a particular mastery over English that I can, I can conduct in English, right? Mm -hmm. So, like the way like musicians, they can use lights and stuff like that to conduct the emotions of their audience. I feel like, you know, when I write or if I'm preparing a speech or something like that, um, I can be very selective and thoughtful about my word choices and how I say things to make someone feel a certain way, right? But it's not a language that I feel native to, that it's not my home language, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a language that I'm very cognizant of um, that I speak it because it, it's an inherent, inherited colonial language, right, right? Right. It's not, and even the places that I speak English, um, you know, like here in the states, it's there's, um, it, it's not made for me. Mm. It's not made for me, mm-hmm. even though I'm strong in it, and I feel like I have a particular power in the language. I don't feel oppressed by it, um, but I feel like Kikuyu more so is my home language it's the language that I feel like I can find familiarity with Kikuyu and Kiswahili is more familiarity mm-hmm. um and affirmation that I can find there that I wouldn't be able to find in English yeah. and so when I think about the fact that um I'm only able to do my higher level thinking in a colonial language um what does that mean for me, my community, uh, my communities, my children, my children's children, and the community that they will be a part of? Um, and so part of why Molimuerimu is not just, oh, here's some vocabulary, and trying to express myself um, the way I would want to in English, but push myself to do it in Swahili, is trying to reach um, those higher level thinking capacities in Swahili. Mm-hmm. Um, and while being on the quest to do that, <laughs> I also realized that um, there's limited resources in Swahili um, than there is in English. Like mm-hmm. in English, I think it's like, there's, there's just so, there's so much like on the internet, there's so much books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's just so much to pull from, to, 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 to develop my language but in Swahili I'm I'm pretty limited there are some resources out there but they're not widely accessible um and so part of why I have my dream was just to add to that um to hopefully just add to um the Swahili content that is available on the internet before I forget 
I want to yes. ask you uh, to please tell us where we can find you. On yeah, that is like I don't want to <laughs> not give you a chance. To, I don't want to not give you a chance to um, to let people know how to find you and where they can get in touch with you and they can follow your journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. Um, it is Mwalimu Wairimu. So that is spelled M W A L I M U W A I R I M U. Um, so that's where you can find me on Instagram. You can follow me, follow um, you know, my journey and get some Swahili content and whatnot. Tell me what is one thing that you would want people to know about Swahili, uh, Swahili language or about Kenya that people mm. either don't know or have the wrong idea about? Mm. Good question. Um, I would say, so I've heard people in the uh, like Western academic space calling Swahili a tonal language, mm. which I don't. I, I don't see because, you know, the tonal language would be meaning that um, the pitch of the language of, of your, of how you enunciate things is what determines the meaning, mm -hmm. but that's not the case in Swahili. Right. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, the whole, the whole language is boiled down to how you enunciate syllables. So there's really one way to pronounce um different Swahili words mm -hmm. um so I think I would I would say that like if anyone heard that Swahili is a tonal language um you can say basically what I said <laughs> that's funny because I yeah I even I know it's not a tonal language mm -hmm. and I don't know much about Swahili well I know more now after talking to you but that's surprising but yeah yeah yeah, I definitely got that, like, from a professor, and then, like, someone else, like, a colleague later mentioned that again, and I just, like, hear it here and there, and I'm like, wait, who's, who's been saying this? You know what's crazy? Like, do you think that people just don't care? Because I feel like nobody would ever say, like, something untrue about a European language. Like, I, I feel that like... That is true. I feel like people just... It's really, it frustrates me a lot. And I'm glad that a lot more people are starting to kind of take notice of the value and richness of African languages and African cultures. And mm -hmm. I think that for too long, people have just looked at Africa as like over there. And it's like, okay, first of all, it's a whole continent. Right. So many different uh not only so many different languages, but so many different customs over a multitude of countries. Um, and I hope that people are starting to wake up to that and just realizing like, you cannot generalize. You know? Right. And as soon as you said, like, people think you've heard people say Swahili is tonal. I'm like, did somebody just hear like Yoruba? And just assume like, oh, every African language must be tonal or maybe it's it's all tonal because I don't understand it and I can't be bothered to trying to understand it. Mm. This is just my personal pissed off soapbox about this kind of thing. Because, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Um, but I think that's a really good thing that 
um, now I want people to know about that too. My final question that I have for you mm-hmm. is, do you have any jokes, popular <laughs> sayings, tongue twisters, cool slang words, idioms, words of wisdom or advice in Swahili to share? Mm. So in Kiswahili, you know, we have uh, methalis, which are called proverbs, lots of riddles called kitendawilis um, that we have. So there's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole thing. Um, wow. I can share a proverb. I'm kind of more of a sage. Um, sorry, anyone who wanted me to like make a joke or anything like that. No, but okay. um, there's a proverb that goes... Which means one hand cannot slaughter a cow. And I think that's especially particularly relevant in the political climate in, in America right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, because the, the sentiment of that proverb is that, you know, you, you can't have one hand and take down something like a like a cow something that's massive and it's like bigger than you mm-hmm. you need you need people you, you need to work as a team to right. be able to um sorry to any um you know people who are against people eating animals mm. um but kenya has a very um we eat a lot of meat so um yeah, yeah. so uh yeah so you know when when you know, a, a bigger animal is being slaughtered. It, it's it's a team effort. Mm-hmm. So um, that's pretty much what um, the wisdom that wisdom that proverb is imparting is that you can't slaughter a cow by yourself. You need other people, and you need to work together in harmony to be able to slaughter a cow. Okay, I am going to put my feet on the floor embrace myself because you're going to teach me how to say it (laughs) yes and I'm just going to tell you I like to do this only because it's so easy to just not try it's harder Mm. to actually try and I think so many of the languages that I've spoken to people I don't know two words I can't put a sentence together and I'm terrified to do this I'm terrified to say to you right now please teach me how to say this because no you got this I know I'm gonna make mistakes but making mistakes is part of the journey so yeah and we all do it so (laughs) you won't be the first one and not the last so you'll you'll be fine you'll be fine okay very slowly (laughs) from the top all right all right all right first word is Kono. So mm. it's mm-hmm. Kono? Mm. Yes. Mm, kono. Mm, kono. Uh, yep, that's hand. Mm-hmm. And then one is moja. Moja. Mm-hmm. Mkono moja. Mkono moja. That's one hand. Good. And then how chinji. How how, how chin chin. G. G. Mm-hmm. How chingy. How chingy. Mm-hmm. How chingy. How chingy. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> ngombe. Ngombe, when you see um, N-G apostrophe, it's like a ng sound that comes from the back of the throat. It's a ng. 
Like, no. No. Uh, more so at the back of the throat. No. Like, no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I can, like, imagine, like, people listening to this, like, what? No. No. So, ngombe. Ngombe. Yeah. Oh, oh. Yes. Beautiful. Great. I did it. Let's let let's let's do it again. You know, okay. just, just right. get that muscle memory in <laughs> <laughs> before we get too hype. Ngombe, no, ah, you you got it, you got it. Ngombe, ngombe. Uh huh. Okay, now we can do from the top. Nkonomoja how chingi ngombe. Nkonomoja how chingi ngombe. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I, I know it was a struggle, but, but you did it. You did it. I tried my best. <laughs> you did. I could tell. A for effort. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I also apologize to the Swahili-speaking community. But, no, no. Uh, but you know what? It's, it's, we get it's, it. It's worth a try. And everybody yeah. starts somewhere. So. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could be an inspiration to somebody to try something new, I'm happy to put those shoes on and be that person. <laughs> so um, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank I really you. enjoyed this time talking with you and I learned so much and thank you for teaching me that sentence. I'm still catching my breath. I'm still like, <laughs> wait a minute. What is, I actually said something. You actually said something. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing your culture with all of us. Um, and I want to ask you uh, one more thing. Mm-hmm. How in this context would be the best way to say goodbye? Oh, kwaheri. You could say kwaheri, which is, you know, goodbye. Or you can say tutonana badai. We'll see each other later. Tutonana badai? Badai. Badai? Badai. Badai. Mm-hmm. Badai. Badai. Mm. Yeah, tutonana badai. I will work on it. <laughs> you're doing good though you're, you're doing really good you're doing really good i'm eager and enthusiastic and that's what I, i'll that. use to make up for my lack of skill <laughs> yes yes that's what we need but thank you that's all, that's, that's all you need yes thank you so much <laughs> i'm so happy to talk to you and i'll be talking to you i'll be talking to you soon yes yes <laughs> to tell nana